Hello, everybody, and welcome to Renar Voice. This is episode 10. Uh, my name is Robert Swatala, and with me is my co-host, Jeff Mazone. Jeff, how are you? Hey, Robert. Good morning. Good to see you. Good morning. So, quick question. Are, are you okay with change? Are you, like, does that bother you? Wow. Did you talk to my wife? Well, I'm just curious, because I guess <laughs> we, we got something different today. Oh, man. I, see, I'm an only child, so I'm naturally inflexible. Okay. Um, All right. And I, I generally can't comprehend that people wouldn't just defer to my preferences because that's how I that's was. That's what ready. you should be, right? right? That's what you should be. So, <laughs> no, I don't do well with change. I have a feeling you're going to drop some change. Well, you know, I figured this is episode 10 and, mm. you know, we're going to mix it up a little bit today. And so one of the ways that we're going to mix it up is we have a special co-co-host today. Yes. <laughs> and and I'm excited uh, to have another voice on Renar Voice. And our co-co-host is Teresa Prince, and she is from the Rho Eta Sigma chapter. Teresa, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. It's nice to have another voice on our on our team here. So glad to have you. And glad to be here. Glad to be here with you and Jeff and see you do this in person. Yeah, well, don't don't get too excited because it's not overly <laughs> too impressive. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm just happy Teresa's here because she's like the patroness of the Blackboard Peer Connection yes, Board. Is. You know, she is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So people will definitely recognize it. I mean, if there's a post, uh, I think you've responded to it. Um, that's so great. funny. Yeah, yes, yeah, which is great. I mean, that's awesome because you've you've given so much wisdom and guidance to not only me but so many other students. So thank you for that, and thank you for being here today. Oh, thanks, y'all. Um, and and Jeff, maybe maybe you can mention why kind of we thought it'd be good to have a special guest, a special co-host here today, and then maybe let Teresa go ahead and, and introduce our our guest for today. Well, so today we're talking play therapy, and we have Dr. Robin Simmons on um, today, who Teresa will introduce. But Dr. Simmons, I think among the professors at Liberty, is probably a leading expert in play therapy. And play therapy is uh, very popular among the students. You see a lot of posts about it, especially the training that was offered several months ago that I know Teresa had attended. And if I remember, it was sold out. And yeah, I think just figuring that out, especially as students get into practicum and internship and they end up perhaps seeing more children than they expected and when is and when is not the right time for play therapy and how to be trained in it. Uh, so it, yeah, it just kind of seems like a great topic to discuss uh, for us as we start seeing clients. And having Teresa here seemed appropriate because Teresa is the chapter president uh, for the same CSI chapter of which Dr. Simmons is the faculty advisor. So. It was a it was a win win. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Teresa, could you introduce Dr. Simmons for us? Yes, please? I would love to. Dr. Robin Simmons has been in the counseling profession for over 20 years with clinical experience in both the public and private sectors and faculty appointments in both on ground and online counselor training programs. She is a member of the American Counseling Association, the Association for Play Therapy, the Association for Counselor Education and Supervision, as well as her state and regional chapters of these organizations. Dr. Simmons' research and clinical interest include sexual trauma, vicarious trauma, play therapy, and professional identity issues. Dr. Simmons currently serves as chapter faculty advisor for the Chi Sigma Iota Rho Eta Online student chapter of Rho Eta Sigma. Thank you for being here, Dr. Simmons. Thank you for having me. 
I'm happy to see all of your faces um, and to hear your voices as well. Yeah, it's it's wonderful to have you, Dr. Simmons. And uh, I mentioned this before. You were my first professor at Liberty, and I was just a little self-disclosure. I was a bit uh, hesitant about Liberty uh, coming in. And that first week with you and your first lecture, I just, I'm home. This is where I need to be. I This is where God wants me to be. And, and that, I can do this. So just the conviction uh, with which you speak about your role and who you are as a woman of God and as a counselor, uh, yeah, that, that set me on fire. So it's a real privilege and honor to have you here. Well, thank you. I feel that every day when I um, when I go to work, which means um, turn on my computer, that <laughs> God has uh, ordained me to be here at this time. It is um, just so much um, spiritual connection that I have, not just with um, my colleagues and with the university, but with the students as well. Hmm. So we mentioned, you know, just introducing the episode that that we wanted to talk about play therapy. So, Dr. Simmons, can you give us just a brief overview of play therapy, particularly the appropriate age range and population, and and just the nuts and bolts of how it works? So I don't know that you can give a brief introduction to play therapy because there's just so much, um, so much to it. When I think about like why play therapy, there's probably plenty of people who work with kids who aren't trained as play therapists, and they would say, um, yeah, I, I do a good job with them. But if you talk with anybody who's been trained in play therapy, we will all say, this is the only way to work with children. And there's different types of play therapy, and we can talk about that um, as well. But um, just in general, if you understand human development, and as mental health counselors or counselors in training, you absolutely need to understand um, human development. Uh, it it allows us to understand that working with an adult is different than working with an adolescent and it's different than working with a child. There's developmental stages um, that allow the mind and the heart to connect differently. So um, Gary Landreth, who is kind of one of the most famous play therapists, said that play is the natural language of children and toys are their words. And if this is the case, then we cannot expect a child to be able to have a sit-down conversation of, yeah, it's been a really rotten day at school. You know, this little kid was making fun of my pink jacket, and I really felt like I was rejected in that moment. That's not something that um, the developmental period um, cognitively allows a child to process through. So what children do is they play through their experiences, they show us in their play. There are, when you work with a, a kid um, over a series of sessions, you often see the same play theme. It might look different in how it's played out, but it's the same theme over and over and over. And this is more of that processing of the story that you might have with an adult who um, comes back session after session to kind of pick apart another element of the same story they've been sharing. So in saying all of that, um, the appropriate age range, well, that, of course, depends on where the child is developmentally. We know that there are certain developmental periods, but we also know that those are on average. And so children may um, be a little more advanced. I've, in my career, I've had one kid who's kind of like, yeah, I don't really want to do that stuff. Let's just sit and talk. Um, but most of the children I've worked with have had some sort of trauma, have, um, as a result, have 
had some sort of arrested development. And so pretty much everybody has been, uh, or every kid I've worked with has been very amenable to it. Um, But now what they do in that playroom may look a little different um, from one kid to the next. Um, So I want to also say that I don't limit play therapy to just children. Um, Now, I might not do, and I'll talk a little bit about non-directive and directive play. I may not engage an adolescent or an adult, actually. Not not that I may not. I would not engage an adolescent or adult in non-directive play therapy. Can you imagine that? The adult comes in and you say, in here, you may do many of the things that you wish to do. You may not hurt yourself on purpose. You may not hurt me on purpose. Or you may not hurt a toy on purpose. But I would use some of those things that I might use in a directive play therapy session. So some of the more creative, um, metaphorical-based techniques I might use with adolescents or adults, like creating a collage to um, allow the client to express how they're feeling. Or um, sand tray in particular, I find, to, to not really have age limits around it. It looks a little different. There's always movement in sand tray when you're working with kids where adolescents and adults tend to have static um, sand tray develop or their own development of their sand tray. Some of the history, it's been around in the literature about a hundred years. So who knows how long it happened before that, but Anna Freud, who is um, Sigmund Freud's daughter was the first to, to publish about it. And so we know, um, that Anna Freud was also um, a psychoanalyst, just like uh, Sigmund Freud was. And so the play comes out of that psychoanalytic thought. And when you think about um, this concept that early psychoanalysis um, theory taught us, ab reaction, that, that is um, projecting feelings into something. And so play therapy is, is kind of founded in this idea of ab reaction that whatever's happening with the child is projected into um, intentionally chosen toys. And we can talk a little more about that in a minute. Um, Intentionally chosen toys um, while they're in that, that play setting. And then as counselors, we use really the same skills that um, we would use from a Rogerian perspective. So like we have that un- the understanding of um, the play from that kind of, and the themes that come out of the play from that psychoanalytic foundation. And then um, the same way we might reflect a feeling with an adult client, we do what's called tracking with um, a child client. And so we connect it to content, ref- uh, feeling and meaning. Um, you might say, um, you're really beating up that teddy bear. It looks like you're feeling very angry right now. So we're connecting that with our tracking responses. And that would be very specific to non-directive play therapy. And non-directive play therapy is really what it sounds like. You are not directing the play of the child. The child is leading and you are following along with them. Whereas directive play therapy, um, you you as the, the play therapist have um, a goal and an uh, an intention with what you're going to ask the child to do in that session. So for me personally, I strictly use non-directive play therapy till about the fourth grade uh, and give or take, depending on where somebody falls in, in that, um, that space of cognitive development. 
and maybe around um, fourth grade, if I sense that the child still needs that um, non-directive play, then that's certainly um, where I'll go with it. But if I feel like um, they that the directive play, like that intentional um, ask of the child to do this or do this or do this, that would help um, progress them to, on that uh, treatment plan, then I would use that with the um, with that child. Dr. Simmons, that's a, that's a great overview. Um, certainly for me, cause I, I'm not really, I've never been exposed to play therapy, um, other than I guess playing with my own children, but that wasn't certainly maybe intentional with them. But, uh, um, is there anything that stands out for you in terms of your experience using play therapy, any type of memorable story, any type of, um, I don't know, just something that, that, when you did it or when you, there was a major breakthrough or just something memorable that stands out that, that allows you to keep wanting to use that technique? Oh, I have several um, anecdotal stories. My favorite is this um, little guy. We're just going to call him Max. And he came to me when he was three and a half. So back to the idea of age, like there, there are people who practice play therapy with younger than than three. Um, I don't, but that's not to say you can't, but often you're not seeing children come into counseling younger than the age of three. So three is kind of the beginning of when I might see a kid. And so he was about three and a half when he started coming to see me. So generally the story is um, he and his sister and um, baby brother were removed from the home. There was a lot of domestic violence in the home. Um, the mother was was really loving. She was a good mother to her children. She was in a situation where the children were in danger. And, and because of her fear of the harm that would come to her or her children, she stayed in that home. So it was really like the impetus. Um, they removed the children. This gave her the courage to leave. And so the, re- the reunification with mother happened really quickly. So we don't typically see that when um, Child Protective Services are involved. Um, so she was bringing, the reunification had, had recently happened, and she was bringing them to see me, the children. So in particular, this little guy played this theme. Remember I said that we'll see the themes played perhaps in different ways, but it's the same theme. For this guy, it was the same play, the same theme over and over and over. And then one day he just didn't need to play it anymore. So when you're a play therapist, you see this often. Um, Actually, a really great book, if you're interested in play therapy, is written by Virginia Axline, also one of those foundational thinkers for play therapy. Um, And she, uh, the name of the book is called Dibs in Search of Self. D-I-B-S, in search of self. And um, in the book, she's indicating that, you know, the play was so intense, so intense, and then all of a sudden, he essentially is saying, okay, don't need to do that anymore. I'm good. (laughs) And so I feel like that's what happened with with this little guy. But let me tell you about the play. So remember, I've mentioned the significant domestic violence in the home. And this little guy had observed his father beating his mother on more than one okay, one occasion and almost killing his mother on um, on a few occasions. 
And so with domestic violence, we understand there's always the honeymoon period, right? There's that, that time where, ah, I'm so sorry. I don't know what got a hold of me. And, and there's that emotional engagement. So it's really hard to understand as an adult that kind of how can you love me and, and be so cruel at the same time. So for this guy, we played this game of bandit. I absolutely love that he called it a bandit in, in um, the 2000s. <laughs> like, where, where do we use this word bandit? And he's three and a half, four years old um, during the time we worked together. And so he, he, I had a desk um, pushed up against my wall. And um, so we would have to hide from the bandit. He would always pack us a picnic, which lets me know that there's like a nurturing thing to him, that it wasn't like he was an angry kid who was um, forever tainted by um, observing this violence in his home, but that there was an emotional connection. So he'd pack us a picnic and we would crawl under my desk together and he would lean out around my desk and we had to whisper he's like shh the bandit is right outside the door we have to be quiet so he can't hear us but then eventually the bandit would come in and he would be like it's okay I'm not gonna hurt you and then and then we'd have to get quiet again because the bandit might hurt us so he would leave outside the door so there's this element of he needed to protect me. There's that cycle of domestic violence. We're saying I get chills every time I think about this story because it was everything he was experiencing I could see in this play. And he played it over and over until he just didn't need to play it anymore. And I think that's the power of play is he he was able to do that ab reaction. The other element of ab reaction is that the, the child has power over the play. So the child then is no longer the victim to the circumstances around them. The, per- the, the child is the one who can say, this is how I want it to end. Just in hearing that story about Max, um, just the basics that we understand from trauma, in that situation, is the play like an opportunity for the child to resolve the stress from the trauma? Is that how that's working in this situation? Right. So catharsis is one of those powers of play. And that's what I think you're speaking to is that ability to kind of um, emote through what they're doing. Like he's, he's playful while he's doing this. And most children are, they're not tears streaming down their face as they go through those things. There's that playful element to it, but yet they are expressing all of the elements all of the emotional elements associated with what they have experienced. And is the goal to that then to then move into talk therapy or do you continue on the play therapy track once that's been resolved? Yeah. So it depends on the age of the kid, but like, you know, for this little guy, when we stopped working together, he was four and a half. There's no way he was going to say, Oh, gosh, that felt so good. I'm so glad that I got to play that out with you. Like he just didn't have that. I mean, really what happened is I had a little bowling game in my um, play office and he just started playing bowling. Like there was no longer a theme associated with what he was doing. Um, Now I've had older children who, um, I've used more non-directive play therapy and talk therapy gets 
connected to that. And I can tell a little story about that. So um, let's say this guy's name is Franklin. And he came to me in the fourth grade because he was just having complete meltdowns at baseball practice when he was um, taking practice spelling tests at home. If he was not perfect, he needed to be perfect. And so we started off with some non-directive play and, and often you see with um, with males more so than females is kind of the good guy versus bad guy. So he would play out this theme of a battle um, over a period of time. And then we just kind of started talking as he was playing through things. And I can't even remember. I'm sure I asked something like, you know, um, what's it? I connected it back to the battle. I know I did that. Like, what's it like when the good guy wins? The one that tells you, hey, it's okay if you miss a word on the spelling test. And what's it like when the bad guy wins? So he says, it's like this little voice in my head. And I said, well, what, what does the voice sound like? He said, a squeaky squirrel. So we wrote a book together um, called, um, well, when you write a homemade book, and let me just put a call out to this book by Robert Ziegler <clears throat> called Homemade Books to Help Kids Cope. I'm sure it was published in the 90s, but one of my go-tos in um, working with kids, <clears throat> especially with the directive play therapy. So anytime you write a book with a kid, want the character's first name to start with the same letter as the kid's first name. Um, so we're calling the little guy Franklin. So let's say Fred and the very squeaky squirrel. And he just kind of co-authored it with me. Like I would, I would ask the facilitative question. He would tell me, we'd write it down. Um, when you're doing this, you can like pull up images, clip art, whatever from the computer. You could have the kids draw and illustrate it. And then you send the book home with the kids and ask the parents to read to the, to the kids. Usually, well, in my experience, when it's something like this, when we don't have like underlying trauma, um, it probably takes a good two or three weeks of reading the book for you for it to really like sink in, um, and they start to feel some of of that relief as a result. So um, when he would come in, we would talk about like the book and um, what was it like at baseball practice this week, and so we were able to incorporate talk therapy along with that play. Dr. Simmons, those are two great stories, and I love the fact that you're able to share those. As you were talking, especially about Max, and you got to that point that there was the end of that bandit play, can you just share like what you felt internally? I, I got to imagine that was like just an, an awesome feeling um, that you, you knew that there was a breakthrough. And I got to imagine that's that's unique and different in play therapy than than our traditional talk therapy. Can you just share like what you felt internally that that emotion? You know, um, as you said that, it made me think about one of my telehealth clients um, who is an adult had a great breakthrough um, with some anxiety, and and I um, said to her like, "I'm giving you a double high five right now." Right. And she's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm giving it back to you. Like we were celebrating. So with play therapy and like a situation where <clears throat> you see that resolve happen, you can't say, all right, high five, kid. <laughs> You've just resolved your, your um, issue there. So it's like that celebration between you and the kid can't happen in the same way it can happen with an adult. 
Um, you can't take that moment to say, oh, that's awesome that you're able to incorporate all of the things that you wanted to incorporate in your life. Um, so it is kind of a, um internal celebration that you have. And um, even when you just asked, what was that like for you? I got chills. And so those are the things like when you can see that, that magic moment, when you see that happen, it, it is, it's truly seeing into the world of that client. Like you're seeing it through the play and you see like, oh, okay, he's okay. He's going to be okay. This is not going to be something that, um, haunts him the rest of his life because he's been able to, to navigate through that. Um, what would be cool. And I'm just a, a beginning student of um, neuro counseling or neuro informed counseling. Um, what would be cool if, if there was a brain mapping image before the play and after the play to see if there are any differences um, neurologically there, I, I suspect it would be, but it's exciting. It truly is, too. Uh, and I think that's why I love play so much. First of all, kids are fun, and they um, and, and they can be hard, too. Like, I've, I've had my fair share of these kids where I think, do I really want to keep doing this? This is harder than I thought. I literally came home one time with sand all in my hair because my little ADHD kid had a hand puppet who was, in the sand tray, eating the sand, and looked at me and decided to lick my head like the hand puppet did. I had sand for days. You know, there, there are those times. Dr. Simmons, thank you for sharing these stories. Um, every time I hear you talk, you just, you bring in so much, and you paint such a beautiful picture of the hope and help that is found for children in play therapy. And so thank you for sharing that passion. Um, would you say it's okay to use play? I know you touched on it a little bit at the beginning um, that a trained play therapist is always going to be better than just a counselor playing with children. But would you say that it's okay to use play if you're not certified in play therapy? And then also, how would one go about becoming certified? So our code of ethics, of course, tells us that we do not need to use um, any type of therapeutic process intervention if we have not been trained. So if you're not yet registered, that would be the um, nomenclature for being certified as a play therapist. If you're not yet registered, um, it's perfectly appropriate to use play under supervision um, while you are learning to do this. But if you're just saying, hey, you know what? I hear about this play therapy. I'm gonna put some toys on my office and see what happens. I think that's being irresponsible. Um, because we are very specific about what types of toys and um, what types of skills to use and how to understand it. Um, so how to become a play therapist, you have to have 150 clock hours of instruction. And that can happen through graduate level coursework on play therapy or play therapy workshops and trainings. Um, but you have to be very um, particular about which ones you spend your money on because they do not count if they are not um, APT approved. And APT is the Association for Play Therapy. So that organization has to approve the um, workshops uh, so that they count toward um, those 150 hours. You also have to have 35 hours of play therapy specific supervision by a registered play therapist supervisor. 
So there's two levels of registration for play therapy. It's a registered play therapist. That's the person who has met um, all of the requirements but hasn't been doing it long enough and hasn't taken the supervision um, training. And then the other uh, uh, level, of course, is the registered play therapist supervisor. So you have to have 35 hours of supervision under the RPTS and 350 hours of work with children doing play therapy. Um, You have to be licensed by your state as well. So a lot of people will double dip. For instance, in, um, in Alabama, I am a licensed professional counselor supervisor and a registered play therapist supervisor. So I get a draw of people who want to work with children because they can essentially kill two birds with one stone when they're working with me. Um, and, it, and it actually works out perfectly. They may have more than 350 hours of working with kids before they get their license. Um, but as soon as I can deliver that paperwork to the state licensure board saying they've met those requirements, I also give them the paperwork for them to submit to the uh, Association for Play Therapy to become a registered play therapist. And then once you're registered, you have um, the renewal period is every three years and you have to have 18 hours of play therapy specific continuing education that can also double dip um, with your continuing education for your state. So, Dr. Simmons, I have to tell you that, um, you know, I just started practicum here uh, this semester, early 2021, and uh, my first round of clients, I had two children back to back. and. You know, you started practicing as a student, and you don't really know what kind of population you want, to, you want to work with. So after I finished the second of the two children, uh, it was all telehealth. I walked out into the kitchen. My wife was there, and I said, I want to work with kids. This is unbelievable. <laughs> and I think of that, too, because we learned that so much of the psychopathology that we experience uh, with adult clients begins as children. And so, uh, I don't know, I, I feel like there's a lack of emphasis on, hey, you know, we need to we need to be working with children and, and in the best ways to do that. And it sounds like this is a real universal application of, of a way to begin working with children uh, for the sake of, of preventative uh, measures, if, if I'm understanding that correctly. So, I, I mean, how do we, how do we get this out there? How do we get people amped up about this? Oh, um, people as in. Um, counselors and counselors in training and other mental health professionals or people as in parents because parents I find to be um, the biggest obstacle sometimes in in making the um, difference in the success of the play therapy. So when you have a parent who's very invested and bringing their child on a regular basis and then also um, I think just a nod to something Robert said earlier, playing with his children, like there, there's something we call um, filial play therapy, where we teach parents how to have dedicated time each week with a special set of toys um, to do the same thing that, that we do um, with as clinicians with their kids. Um, and it, it helps with attachment and relationship building and all of that stuff. And so when we have parents who follow through with that, and again, who are consistently bringing their kids to counseling, then we're going to see beautiful, beautiful success. But we do know the attachment literature tells us it takes one adult investing in a child, caring for a child, um, accepting the child. So actually, let me just pause right here and read a quote I wanted to read earlier, but I forgot to. 
Virginia Axline said, play therapy works because we give a qualitatively different uh, relationship to a child. We accept that child exactly as he or she is in that moment in time when they're with us. We're not a parent. We're not a teacher. We're just in this space of, of being present and accepting. So we don't do corrective stuff when a kid um, says something that, uh, you know, you want to give them the stink eye. You don't do that. <laughs> um, you just accept that child where they are. So it takes one one adult in their life. So play therapy can make a difference even if the parents aren't consistent. It just helps so much more if if we know the kid's going to come each week and um, if we know that we can get those parents engaging um, in those relational um, moments with their kids. How do we get the word out to um, other clinicians like this? Um, podcast, um, workshops, um, including it in our curriculum for uh, the training of not just of counselors, but other mental health disciplines. And I want to say too, Jeff, um, I started my practicum many, many years ago <laughs> with the full intention of being a marriage counselor. And after two sessions with a couple, I was like, Ugh, this is not for me. And I just happened to be assigned because I didn't really love children. Not that I didn't love them, but it's like it wasn't a passion of mine. Um, and it was a, a little five-year-old boy who had ADHD. Um, and I was hooked after one session. I just enjoyed that, that um, imagination of the child. I enjoyed, um, I think maybe... Speaking to what you're talking about, Jeff, is the hope. Like here, here, before they're cynical, before all of the dirt and grime of life get just kind of weighed down on them. This is the space where we can um, do this um, work that can change the course of the rest of their life because of that one adult investing in them and accepting them um, for who they are in that moment in time. Yeah, that's great, Dr. Simmons. And what a, what a great way to, to wrap up. Um, so much good information. I certainly learned a lot about play therapy. It's not something, like I said at the beginning, that, that I've had much exposure to, but this was a great overview. Um, and again, thank you for just the the intimate nature with the stories and just your experience and, 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 and really what you have been able to incorporate in play therapy. So I, I certainly appreciate everything that you're able to offer today. So thank you for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I, I love talking about play therapy and hopefully um, listeners out there are um, intrigued and want to learn more and can always reach out to me for more information. Yeah, that's great. And we may have to have you back on for our, for our part two, because I have a feeling there's a lot more content there that we could we could tackle in, in the next session. So um, definitely thank you again for, for being on. And I want to thank Teresa also for being on. Um, Jeff, I think she was just a, a natural fit in. We're going to have to have her on again. Uh, she definitely read the bios way better. Oh, yeah. You noticed that, that too? Yeah, than yeah, we have did. ever done. She's a pro, man. Yeah. I mean, when you and I do it, we got to edit it and redo it. And like, she was like, she showed up to play, yeah. man. She yeah. had to leave. She has a client. But uh, I mean, I, that's my retirement plan. That's why I brought Teresa on. 
just so just so that she can take our spot. Yeah, actually, yeah. I don't think I can do this anymore because she's like. <laughs> <laughs> so real real quick before we wrap up, I just have to mention this, and 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 Jeff, if we want to edit this out, that's okay. Or leave oh, it. here we go, um, Doctor Simmons. You know, you mentioned at the beginning that play therapy is not really meant for adults typically, but I know our listeners can't see this, but we do have it on video. My my dear co-host Jeff um, tends to use a mini sippy cup for drinks during the session. So mini mouse, mini uh, mouse. yeah, mini mouse. And so, Doctor Simmons, we may want to start changing that format a little bit, and and maybe play <laughs> therapy could be a good uh, a test run on adult for Jeff. You know, because because I got to be, yeah. tell uh, yeah a good a good uh, a good research paper. <sighs> right, right. Case study qualitative approach, absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's great! Oh, sorry. Okay, listen, Jeff. the mini—I know you've been waiting a long time. I have, yes. Okay, we're gonna we gotta wrap this up. Doctor Sim has more important things to do than talk about agree. Minnie Mouse cups. Yeah. Okay, absolutely, absolutely. But, uh, right. You're right. I, so I'm on I'm on Minnie Mouse cup probation because I usually drink out of like a mason jar and I always drop it. And which, so, and we have little need, children, so we don't need glass shards everywhere. So I've you imposed, need the sippy cup. I've imposed the Minnie Mouse plastic cup. Uh, <laughs> to prevent you know shards of class okay so yes. are you happy now yeah i had to get that in. so it was perfect timing dr <laughs> sims thank you for giving me an opportunity to to bring that up uh it was perfect so thank boy, you i appreciate boy. it i know what thank everybody for listening today and uh hope you'll be able to check us out for future episodes coming up but we have a lot of great guests coming up so feel free to check us out on any of the podcast platforms and, uh, and thank you for listening. Have a blessed day.